What's better than one John? Here's Johnny. Hmm. Nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Kenzano and Wilner, a.k.a. John and John. The Pac-12 Conference, as we knew it, will be coming to an end this summer. And Commissioner George Kiafkoff has been at the center of that storm. I'm John Canzano. I'm here with John Wilner. I uh, appreciate everyone who listens to the podcast. Make sure you subscribe to it. We're going to dive right into it off the top of the podcast today. Wilner, you had the news. Pac-12 starting the separation process with George Kiafkoff. Tell us what you know. Well, I mean, my guess is 50% of the folks out there we're surprised he hadn't been dismissed already. And the other 50% are like, well, what took him so long? Right. Um, so here's what we know. The Washington state and Oregon state are the board of the PAC 12. This is their decision. They are required to notify the other 10 members. And I believe give three days uh, for any kind of comment or feedback discussion. And then the two schools can proceed with the separation process. Uh, I'm guessing it's going to be fairly amicable that there's, you know, they've got a settlement figured out. Essentially, they could have attempted to fire him with cause for incompetence or insubordination, but that would have been pretty messy. And I think everybody just kind of wants to move on. Certainly the Beavers and Cougars want to move on. So I, I don't think it'll take that long, whether it gets finalized the end of this week Next week, I don't know, but but it seems pretty clear cut, don't you think? Yeah, and I think I don't think this is going to surprise George Klyovkov either. And we're going to get into what we we both think are his mistakes were, or you know how much of this implosion was his fault. But at the Pac-12 championship game on the sideline before the game, I walked up to him and I had a brief conversation with him. His son was there. Really wasn't the right time to talk about you know. Do you expect to you know how many months do you think you're going to be here? But he did allude to kind of. Uh, kind of made reference to the fact that, you know, his tenure, you know, was going to end at some point, probably sooner rather than later. So I don't, I think he was bracing for this as well. And they may have been negotiating this for some time, but I think he was in the way like Oregon state, Washington state at multiple times in the last month or two have commented about, you know, long-term plans that they're trying to make. He's not part of that. And I know that you and I had kind of bantered about this a little bit, you know, that he, there's a reason that he was needed to go to the meetings that when the, when the power five commissioners are meeting in Washington, DC, and they're meeting with Charlie Baker, you need a representative there and you might as well send the commissioner if he's there. But I just kind of felt like he, his presence was a reminder of what was lost, what happened. He's in the way he's not part of the future. And I was, I was sort of surprised that they didn't move sooner on him. Well, one thing, and, you know, I'm speculating here, but they had to figure out the settlement. Uh, you know, they had to settle that lawsuit but between Washington State, Oregon State, and the, the conference and the departing 10 members, right? And that didn't happen and because that settlement included how they're going to handle liabilities. Uh, I don't know for sure that Klyovkov's contract uh, severance package is going to be part of the liabilities that they discussed, but I think it's a reasonable assumption. And and that wasn't resolved. I think the mediation led to a settlement was that like three or four days before Christmas, right? So then you go you go through the holidays, you come out of the holidays, 
And my guess is they've had, you know, a few weeks of of interaction with with uh, Kliakov and his representation to come up with a, a settlement proposal. And and now here they are. Uh, that makes the most sense to me. I don't think it was reasonable to think that they were going to dismiss him in the fall when nobody knew who was going to have to pay the bill for his departure. Because presumably he's got at least two years, maybe three years left on a contract that's paying him three, three and a half million a year. So that's a pretty uh, hefty buyout figure. And they didn't know who was going to handle the liabilities until December 20th or so. I was told that that number is now around $8 million that they would owe him if they were just going to pay him out. I don't know that they're going to do that, but um, I was also told that his salary, that liability will be split 12 equal ways, that that was part of the settlement, his contract and what was owed to George Kliofkoff. That makes sense. All 12 of the members were on the hook for that. Um, what do they do? What, you know, what do they do moving forward? And then I want to circle back to Kliofkoff. What's What's the short-term solution for the PAC-2? Do they they need a commission? This is like one of the easiest decisions they've had to make in years is they should just, you know, name Deputy Commissioner Teresa Gould the interim commissioner. The question to me, and she's more than qualified. She's well-liked by the campuses. I mean, she she worked as an AD at UC Davis. She worked in Cal's athletic department. She knows what's going on. She understands college sports, right? To me, the question is, is she the and they need I think they need a commissioner to get through this t- basketball tournaments to get through the spring sports you got to have somebody in charge uh but the to me the question is what happens starting in you know June 30th July 1st will she be the permanent commissioner for a PAC 2 do do Washington State and Oregon State even need a commissioner what does a scaled down conference look like now I think the two ADs at Oregon State and Washington State Pat Chun and and Scott Barnes uh, you know, probably could handle a lot of that stuff. But you have, you know, there's some questions here between now and July 1. You know, is the Pac-12 network going to stay open as a production facility? If so, who oversees it? Is that a Teresa Gould job? Uh, will Pac-12.com and the social media uh, channels continue to operate after July? Who owns the data? Remember the deal they made with the uh, the data deal they made, the gambling, sports wagering, marketing deal they made? Like, who owns that data? Do you need a commissioner in place to kind of run that part of the operation? Um, you, know, you know, who's just who's going to act as confer- who's going to hand over the trophy? You know, in in March and and moving forward. So I do I do think Teresa is the right pick. I just don't know what her duties would be between now and July, and then after July because it's a different job before and after, isn't it? It is. And they they're going to need somebody. Look, they're they are going to be a recognized conference by the NCAA. They will need someone to represent them at NCAA meet. You know, all the things that are going on across college sports. You know, I don't think Barnes and Chun have the time to represent the two schools and all that stuff. So they they need somebody working on their behalf. Now, maybe that means they hire her basically as a consultant. I, I don't know, but you you certainly touched on a whole bunch of issues that have to be resolved, but probably before they can determine what the size and scope of the conference staff is going to be like starting July 1st. He's John Wilner. You can read him at Pac12Hotline.com. I'm John Canzano. You can read my work at JohnCanzano.com. I, uh, I closed the door on Kleofkoff in a column that I wrote and posted uh, Wilner, and 
sort of looked at, you know, you know, when he was hired in the spring of 2021, I, I did an interview with the University of Oregon President Michael Schill shortly after that, and I went back and listened to it, and the words that were used to describe George Klyovkov were warm, engaging, collaborative, collegial. This was a correction from Larry Scott, his predecessor. But I'm looking at Klyovkov's tenure, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, what was his biggest mistake? For me, his tenure, the biggest error of his tenure was his failure to manage the presidents and chancellors. It's part of the job of a good commissioner. It's part of the go- job of any good attorney. you got to manage your client. You may be working for him, but you have to manage them. Klyovkov didn't do that. Uh, what do you see as maybe his big missteps? Do you think they wanted to be managed? <laughs> That's another problem. And, and there was transition. Like, I, yes, you're herding cats. And you also have uh, multiple presidents, including Oregon's president, left, was replaced by an interim, interim quit, was, had another interim, then you had another president come in. You were dealing with turnover in those seats as well. But that's part of the job. That's what the money's for, as Don Draper says. <laughs> yeah, great reference. No, you're right. I, I love discussing this this stuff because you know, there's no there's no exact there's no right answer. There's no one item. Uh, certainly, failure to properly manage the presidents is is high on the list. I wonder, though, you know, if we're just taking like the 50,000 foot view, could anyone have saved the Pac-12? I don't know. I'm not saying I necessarily believe this theory, but let me just throw it out there. Was the Pac-12 doomed the moment Larry Scott was fired, which was Inauguration Day, 20, I get January 20th, 2021. I think at five o'clock that afternoon, the conference announced he was he was leaving. So from that moment on, was Pac-12 doomed? I don't want to and say. I would yeah. say that because they, you're right. The they had heard all those years of the issues that Larry Scott posed, right? His management style, you know, everything that went into it, and the sense that the board was going to do exactly what you said, do the opposite. Right. They were going to hire somebody who was the antithesis of Larry Scott and his management style and personality. From that moment on, was the Pac-12 doomed? Because that personality and management style is exactly wrong for realignment. So the only to me, and at that point, I would say Texas and Oklahoma were looking. So you know if you know Texas and Oklahoma are going to be leaving, they're going to the SEC, that's going to start a wave of realignment and USC is going to be a potential target, obviously was PAC 12 doomed because no matter who they were going to hire, the antithesis of Larry Scott was the opposite of what they needed to survive. But if you crazy, you can hire a nice guy. You can hire someone who's collegial, but that person's got either got to be a killer when it comes to negotiating or has to be aware of who they are and has to hire killers and put them around him. And you you have to know your management style. And you're right about realignment. I think you call it a rock fight. I mean, that's the best way to put it. Like it's it's literally a battle to the to the to the end. And the conference, I and I say if you're gonna say that it was doomed the day Larry left, I'll go back even further. It was it doomed when Texas and Oklahoma didn't join the Pac twelve. Like I don't know. Like you how unhappy was USC? I'd I'd need to look uh, USC's president in the eyes and say, you know, what uh, what were you thinking at the time? 
because it may be that USC had its mind made up and they were out and they were leaving no matter what. But part of George Klyovkov's job was to come through the door, assess what was going on. He knew that media rights and, you know, was uh, vital to the future of the conference. Um, he had to know the L.A. schools were unhappy. He did that listening tour and, you know, he I think he made everybody feel really uh, collegial and included. But he did not, you know, even to the hiring of his media consultant, he didn't hire killers. And you need killers, right? you know, in, in those negotiations. He, because, Wilner, I mean, how can we say they were doomed? Because ESPN offered him $30 million in, in October, and they, they foolishly turned it down. But they turned it down because the president's combination of arrogant, ignorant, indifferent uh, didn't have anybody who could steer them towards a reasonable outcome and the, the outcome that would save the conference. But, and they didn't have that person because they didn't want to hire that person because they wanted the opposite of Larry Scott. Like, I mean, I could do the alternative history wormhole, like going all the way back to the South one at Gettysburg, if you want. <laughs> but um, I, I just think, and, and I, and I, and he certainly screwed up royally in many ways, incompetent on this, uh, realignment rock fight and he shows up with a teddy bear right he just n totally ill-equipped for the job uh but i do wonder would they were they going to hire somebody who was going to be equipped for the job because of the model they were they were pursuing i i don't know i'm not letting him off the hook i'm i'm trying to basically i'm putting the onus here is on the presidents and this whole thing starts with the president's the other piece to me is that where he, you know he he came up way short is he never understood the value of relationships college sports is all about relationships right i mean he's got to be he can't just be staying in las vegas trying to get this whole thing managed over 13 months right the moment that uh that that he proposes on August 1st, the initial proposal of the media deal with Apple, and it's clearly not well received, right? He should have been on a plane the next day to Eugene and Seattle, talking to Jen Cohen, Anna Marie Kause, uh, the folks at Oregon, Rob Mullins. Uh, I don't even remember who Oregon's president was at that time. Had they gotten, had Schultz been in? Uh, John Carl Schultz, I guess he had started at that point. He should have been on the plane talking to them in person. He should have been doing more FaceTime with USC and UCLA. I don't know if it would have helped, but it certainly would have laid the groundwork for relationships with the other conferences or the other schools and their leaders. He never got college sports. It's all about relationships. If they had hired somebody who was from college sports, like a guy like Oliver Luck, for instance, who understood that, yeah, maybe it could have been different. But again, where the president's going to hire somebody from within college sports because that person would have known all the warts, would have, you know, come in skeptical of, of the presidents and all the decisions they've made. You know, they went outside college sports for a fresh start. Someone who was going to basically uh, look at them uh, through rosy colored, rose colored glasses, which is what they wanted. Uh, I again, I get back to the fact that I think that in some ways, because of the terrible leadership, 
you could make the case that the conference was was doomed in certain ways. Yeah, you at that time when George Klyovkov is hired, four of the five Power Five conferences had turned over their commissioner role in the pr- previous two years, and you had Mark Emmert at the NCAA saying he was out. Like you had all sorts of red flags that were saying, "Hey, the landscape's shifting. Something is shifting, and everybody's hiring people from outside the college ecosystem." Um, and, you know, here's an int- another interesting thing. Very early in Klyovkov's tenure, what happens? The alliance with the Big Ten. Now, my agent is a guy named Fred Schreier. He's my agent who reps me in the radio world, okay? Fred was the, uh, the head of sports management, he sports management division at Nike. So he was there. He did Michael Jordan's second uh, contract with Nike. He did LeBron's deal. He did Tiger Woods' deal. Fred's a really nice guy. You'd love to play golf with him or hang out with him, but he will kill you in a negotiation. Fred reached out to me when the alliance unfolded, and he said, Klyovkov got played. How do you get played in that scenario? He sniffed it out right away. He's, you know, Fred's a shark, and Fred knew right away that there was a problem there with too nice, too trusting, too easily played. Uh, you know, nobody's arguing that George Klyovkov isn't intelligent. You know, or you know that he has a law degree, uh, that he's well connected in the in you know with his experience at Hulu and Major League Baseball, and certainly in Las Vegas. But when it came to realignment, and you know Kevin Warren, you know ready to shank you in the back, and the SEC well positioned, uh, George Klyovkov needed to come in like bare knuckle fighter, and that's just not who he is. Not who he is at all. I mean, I would argue that. You know, that alliance you, is all intertwined with the Texas and Oklahoma, but also the playoff expansion is going on at that very point. And Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, has been one of the four people in charge of the new format. And here he is negotiating with Texas and Oklahoma on the side. I would argue that if Texas and Oklahoma had gone to the Big Ten, that the SEC and the ACC and the Pac-12 would have put a pause on the playoff discussion in order to retrench. I, I, I'm i not sure. Uh, I, You know, the, the Alliance obviously had no teeth, but I also think that if you if you flip the, the, the narrative, the SEC might have responded in a similar way that the Big Ten did. Uh, so, you know, there's so much we could we can get into. But do you think for a thing? second that George Klyovkov would have shanked Kevin Warren and taken uh, not you know, a chance? In yeah. fact, when they saw, I've been told when they saw each other uh, after at some point they saw each other after the USC uh, must have been a, there was a Rose Bowl meeting. Yeah, there was the summer yeah. of of after USC and UCLA, like July or August of 2022. I, I've been told he saw Kevin Warren and get, kind of gave him a a, a a warm embrace. I mean, what are you doing? Why are you even talking to the guy? But that tells you he showed up to a rock fight with a teddy bear. He was not uh, equipped to to handle that challenge, right? I mean, he's a good guy. I think he's very smart, analytical, but he's not he's not tough enough for that kind of thing. And he certainly doesn't uh, understand the relationship aspect uh, of college sports. That is, and that is what it's all about. 
Yeah, and I think all about I keep looking back to the negotiation, you know, and they get the $30 million offer, and Utah's president, Taylor Randall, is saying, you know, he's consulted with a professor. They've looked at what the Big Ten allegedly got, and they came back and said, you know, we think we're worth $50 million. There were several other presidents who kind of got on board with that. Randall wasn't Mark alone. Mark Tessier-Levine at Stanford was absolutely yeah. in Randall's corner. Yeah, there were a few, and they were in that corner going, we, we're worth more. That's when— Either George Klyovkov or his consulting firm needs to push back and go, this is asinine. We are about to get shut out of this deal. There aren't going to be dollars left at ESPN. If we want ESPN involved, we need to counter in a reasonable number. Uh, Bob Thompson, who we've had on the podcast, the former president of Fox Sports uh, Networks, he had said— Friend of the program. Friend of the program. (laughs) He said they're worth $30 each. ESPN offered $30 million each. You know, Thompson would have come back and gone, you know, hey, uh, let's let's counter at 32, 35. You know, like a reasonable number that keeps ESPN in the room. And instead, you know, they go back at $50 million and they get told, you know, see you later. Well, but again, the it just seems to me like the presidents wanted somebody who was not going to necessarily try to – not necessarily going to try to – you know, strong on them. They yeah. wanted to be in charge is is you can make that argument based on the model that they pursued the anti the anti Larry Scott. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was in the job description that they posted on turnkey was basically they're describing somebody who is going to uh, be fairly compliant. If you if you if you Google the Pac-12 commissioner job description on turnkey uh, ZRG from 2021. Uh, it it paints the picture of a fairly compliant commission. You know, they they, did, so, they got the guy they wanted. There you go. And now they uh, do. Now he yeah. did. In fairness to him, right? He had a hard jo- job. Over and above the mentality of his his board, he had a difficult job because USC and UCLA leave, and he first the first thing he's got to do is he's got to convince the other 10 schools that they should stick together in July and August of 2022 and not scramble to the Big 12, scramble to the Big 10. He's got to convince them there's value in sticking together. Our 10-school league has value. We're going to sign a a media rights deal that will satisfy your needs, right, and keep us competitive. So he tells them they got to stick together because there's value in the in the in the collective ten, but then he's got to turn around. We when they get a, a lay of the land and what the media landscape is, and see a thirty million dollar offer from ESPN, he's got to say, "Well, you got to take this offer, right?" A month ago, we're very valuable, so let's stick around. Now here we are. Well, we're not so valuable, so but let's still stick around, and that's a tough sell to the board. But again, if you have a different commissioner in there. The whole dynamic and conversation is different from the get-go, right? And so I get back to, you know, who they decided they wanted to hire starting at 5 p.m. on January 20th, 2021. I I put, I hold the presidents and chancellors most responsible for the downfall of the Pac-12. No question. Secondarily, I'm going to put Larry Scott as the second factor because I think he put the conference on the road there. I think George Klyovkov is third, and I think other supporting factors are television, 
the changing landscape, other conferences getting desperate and turning into vultures. Um, you know, I th that's how I read it. Uh, how do you see it or how do you differ? My view is that this is a the, the Pac-12 car started heading off, heading off the cliff in 2012 uh, with the, the business model for the Pac-12 networks, uh, the direct TV situation, all that, the revenue promises that got broken or unmet. The car starts heading off the cliff in 2012, right? And over the course of the next 11 years, there's a whole bunch of off-ramps. And they never once took one of those off ramps, right? I mean, it's all the, you can list 12 or 15 strategic decisions and events. They needed one of those things to go right, and the conference would have been saved. And every time it went wrong, either by their own incompetence, misguided strategy, arrogance, whatever it is, or external forces, right? It's like you're flipping a coin 12 times, and you just need heads once. And every single time it came up tails and that's what doomed them. So you can get into not, uh, right. Not, uh, partnering with ESPN in 2018, ESPN takes over the PAC 12 network, signs you to a long-term deal, like what the ACC has at that point, USC and UCLA get locked in. They're not even available to the big 10, right? You, or you get to Jim Delaney, the former big 10 commissioner, Outmaneuvering Scott when he signed in 2018, he signs that short-term deal so that the Big Ten's media rights come up a year before the Pac-12's media rights. I mean, it's endless. The and every school, and I wrote about this in October. It's like murder on the Orient Express. Every school, in some way or shape, except for Washington State and Oregon State, drove a knife into the body. Right? Every school has blood on its hands, but you can't blame them because they're doing what's best for themselves. At the same time, right? I don't blame USC. I don't blame Washington or Oregon or whoever for doing all the things that they did. It's it's just it all starts at the top, though. It all starts with the presidents. There, you know, a reader uh, rose raised an interesting question. You know, is there a four cause termination for Klyovkov, given that he turned against the remaining two schools in late in the process? Could could they argue that the commissioner didn't represent the conference or, or do they just pay him and say, well, you know, enough with the litigation, let's just pay him out. Everybody go their separate ways. I mean, I thought, yeah, I've thought about that. Right. The issue though is, so then you try to fire him for cause and he lawyers up and then you get into, it gets a little messy and then the Pac-12 presidents are faced with the prospect of discovery, right? Emails, text messages, all that stuff that they do not want to go public. Right. So then they have to settle. So what's the delta between that settlement and the one that they did amicably, right? But on a per school basis, you're only talking about, I don't know, $100,000 probably. Uh, it doesn't seem like it would, have been, it would have been worthwhile to go down the path that leads towards, uh, you know, a messy – a messy deal with discovery versus an amicable set amicable settlement. I just don't think there was, it was worth it to them given that they have to, they're splitting it 12 ways. Meanwhile, but you can certainly make the case that he, he acted against the, what was best for the board, which is Washington state and Oregon state. I mean, that flip flop, it, but that flip flop also gets 
into his whole personality of just kind of not making a stand, right? Me, he should have made going, a stand. Going with they, the, the way they, yeah, but yeah, he yeah. should have made a stand. He didn't, but he he didn't ever make a stand. He should have made a stand when he saw Kevin Warren at the Rose Bowl event in August of twenty twenty two or whatever it was, and then he didn't. So all right, that's so, just that's who they hired. All right, so this brings us to Oregon State, Washington, really. Kirk Schultz, the president at Washington State, uh, the college football playoff management uh, group that uh, manages the playoff. There's two years left on that deal. The playoff is, is expanding. The rest of college football would like, uh, you know, Kirk Schultz to vote to move to a five plus seven model with automatic qualifiers and at-large berths. And uh, at this point, he is trying to use that vote to get some leverage and uh, negotiate, uh, you know, a place at the table for the Pac-12 beyond 2025 and potentially some dollars. I mean, ultimately, this just may come down to Oregon State and Washington State want to be treated like they're a Power Four member and get a distribution. Um, are they playing this right? Is Kirk Schultz playing his poker chip in the right way, Wilner? I mean, I look at it like this. If you're a co, you know, you're a coach. You don't want to lose a game with a timeout in your pocket, right? You, you don't want the other team to take that, the winning field goal. You have a timeout. You don't use it. He's got one chip, which is that they need his vote to change the format. And he should use it, I think. It's all in negotiation. He should use that chip. And anybody else, any of those other conferences and the the presidents in those leagues, they would do the same thing. They would use the one chip that they've got. Why not? Right? I don't. He's not going to stonewall the trans the the move from from six and six and six to five and seven. But he's using his chip to position Washington State and Oregon State as best he can. The issue is starting in twenty twenty six. There is no playoff. Right? There's a a contract, an unsigned contract with ESPN for a six year deal for one point three billion a year. But they don't have. Um, they don't know the number of teams. They don't know the revenue distribution. They don't know uh, the governance. They don't know the format. Everything about the playoffs starting in 2026 is undetermined. And so he's kind of trying to negotiate for a spot at a table that hasn't really been built yet. Uh, and you can't blame him for that. But I don't know how much material impact it's going to make on Washington State and Oregon State's position starting in 26. But, hey, good for him for playing his one chip. I agree with you. Like, I don't fault the schools that ultimately had to do what was best for themselves. I kind of pathetic that the rest of college football is looking over at Washington State and Oregon State and going, well, why are you just doing what's best for yourself? That's what everybody did, Wilner. Right, like, Oregon right. did that. Washington did that. Utah did that. Everybody did that. And, you know, Florida State's trying to do that. Everybody's trying to do what's best for themselves. And here is Washington State and Oregon State going, hey, uh, you know, we would like to be included and like to have a seat at the table beyond 2025. And, hell, we've got an opportunity here to try to – we're not going to just give up our automatic qualifier status, even though it's kind of silly. Yeah, there's a negotiation that needs to happen here. And they probably need to get full shares. Maybe – they keep the ability to access the playoff in the next two years if they have if they meet certain criteria. You know, if they win ten plus games and are ranked in the top fifteen, maybe they they get an automatic berth. 
if they're in that position or maybe not. But yeah, I, like you, I don't blame Kurt Schultz for playing the cards that he's been dealt. I also don't think the rest of college football quite grasps the the resilience and the focus that Oregon State and Washington State have had to had to capture in the last six months. You know, they didn't just get left behind. They were facing, you know, uh, you know, the collapse of their athletic departments, the loss of their identity. And I don't think enough is said about Giothi Murthy at Oregon State, who's the president there. She's a fighter. And anybody who knows her story knows, you know, she was she went to a uh, mostly male engineering school in India, was told, you know, you're not going to get a job after you graduate. And she's a fighter. And she's in that position because of it. And I think Oregon State's lucky to have her. And then Washington State's got Schultz, who has this understanding of sports that not all presidents have. He's been around it. He gets it, wants to be involved. He's, he leans into it. And I think that combination is a little dangerous for the rest of college football because, you know, it was Giothi Murthy when the Pac-2 were trying to settle with the 10 departing schools who kept saying anything short of a victory, a clear victory, we were not, we will not accept. She was going to the mattresses, and I think they'll go to the mattresses with this with this vote as well. And I think they'll try to leverage it, and they should. They should, and they've played their cards perfectly to this point. I mean, if you had mapped out uh, a scenario, the best case scenario for those two schools starting September first, when Stanford and Cal joined the ACC, it has been the scenario that actually played out. I mean, I think they've done everything exactly right in terms of partnering with the Mountain West for football, getting their other sports in the WCC, staying as flexible as possible beyond the 2025 season. They've done it exactly right and they're doing it they're doing their best here with what they've got with with the CFP. They're going to get, you know, their full shares uh for for the next two seasons which is like I think it's like five and a half, six million each. Uh, you know, and he's trying to get, he's trying to leverage them into a position of strength beyond that. We'll see, we'll see what he gets, but I would imagine that, you know, they're meeting on, uh, I think it's next Tuesday and he's going to make his proposal. This according to Yahoo, um, he's going to make his proposal to the, uh, to the other members of the uh, CFP board. They'll listen to him. And then they'll, they'll vote. And I assume that the five, seven, the move to five, seven will, We'll go through uh, and we'll see what what Schultz is able to pull off uh, in, in the other aspects here. Revenue sharing is a big thing. Our third topic on today's podcast, Chip Kelly, leaving the head coaching job at UCLA. He will be the offensive coordinator under Ryan Day at Ohio State. Uh, Wilner, I don't think anybody could be surprised by this, given that Chip Kelly was out interviewing for NFL jobs and whatnot. But to take a college coordinator job, what does that say about UCLA? What does it say about Chip Kelly? What does it say about Ohio State? And what does it say about the nature of college football? That that is number three on our list of topics. It's February 14th, right? And UCLA's coach, head coach going to Ohio State as offensive coordinator is number three. I mean, that just tells you how much is going on, how chaotic college football and college sports are these days it's an endless news cycle uh and the stuff that happens from january to july is more important in a lot of ways than what happens from august through through december so uh i think that's crazy and yeah you're right 
I don't think anybody was surprised. Uh, you know, you know Chip better than I do. Uh, but my view is he didn't. He was just wants to call plays, right? He wants to 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 squat on the sideline with that play sheet and call plays like it's he's in Eugene in 2010, and that that job does not exist anymore in college football because of the portal and NIL and everything else. Uh, and plus, I'm sure he looked and saw their schedule and their roster and his buyout drops from eight million this winter to. Four million next winter, and he's thinking, you know what? There's a good chance I'm going six and six, and I'm going to get fired next December. So I might as well leave on my own terms. Yeah, he was one game over 500, and I think that <laughs> was a factor. He had a chance to leave there with a winning record, and uh, you know, get out before <laughs> you know he he goes and wins five games in the Big Ten or six in the Big Ten, and risks all that. Um, it's interesting. We had him on the podcast in October, and we had a conversation with him, and I kind of it was in the back of my mind that. He just seemed more outspoken about a bunch of issues. He was doing interviews in October and November about a variety of topics in college football. It just wasn't quite Chip's normal thing. He was almost talking like a coach who, you know, had nothing to lose and was, you know, here's UCLA trying to sell their fan base on the idea that going to the Big Ten is the best thing ever. Non-revenue sports are going to love it. The revenue sports are going to love it. The travel's not going to be that bad. And you have Chip Kelly saying... No, actually, football is the only one that it makes sense for. Nobody else should do it. So he wasn't he wasn't speaking the company line, and that jumped out to me. And then, and then I had I had talked with him in early January, and I was it was after Washington got pile driven by Michigan in the ta- in the title game, and I started asking him about the Auburn Oregon game in 2011. It was very similar. Like Auburn had big giant guys on the defensive line, like Nick Fairley. And they they controlled the line of scrimmage and and uh, we we ended up talking about nil and I said to Chip before we got off that call I said like hey go get some big guys out of the Midwest and the East like it's cold out there you've got UCLA to you know and the beaches to sell and and he said nil defeats weather and then. I reached back. I mean, it just showed you where his head is. Like, he doesn't want to do NIL anyway. Recruiting isn't his thing. It never has been his thing. But I reached back out to him after he took the Ohio State job. And I, you know, I just said, hey, you get to coach again, you know, and I'm certain that you're going to be happy. And he responded, happy is the key word. You get it. That was his response. And I don't think he'd mind me sharing that because. I just think he wasn't happy doing what he was doing at UCLA. And there's a faction of that fan base that's probably delighted to see him go because he wasn't involved and excited about going to raise NIL dollars. And, and you know, he had an AD that I think if we went around the Pac-12, that might be the worst relationship between a head football coach and an AD that existed in the conference in the last two years. Well, you're right about the faction. I think it's more than a faction. Uh, of UCLA fans is happy. I think it's a, a lot of them, right? They have been soured on Chip since September of his first season when they went they went oh for the month, right? And all of a sudden, the honey. I mean, they went from honeymoon status to uh, you know living in the same house but not speaking to each other, basically. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think UCLA fans are ecstatic. Uh, and certainly, uh, you know, I, I certainly have heard about the, you know, suboptimal relationship between 
between Kelly and, and Martin Jarman, exactly how much that played into this, I don't know. Because here's the other piece. You can't separate the coach from the institution, right, in terms of evaluating success. And I would argue that, you know, UCLA is not set up for success as a football program, right? They haven't won a conference title in a quarter century. Chancellor doesn't care. You know, I've said before, uh, he doesn't, Gene Block doesn't know if a football is inflated or stuffed. And even worse, he doesn't care, right? Uh, you, they don't have a g- great NIL situation. Uh, it's it's tough to hire there because of cost of living. You know, their admissions bar is higher than in their competitors, right? Uh, they've got a lot, the school's got a lot going for it, but it's not as much going for it as it looks at, at first glance. And they are not, and to me, this is the bottom line, on the all-in with college football scale, look at the Big Ten now, right? Ohio State is a 10 on the 1 to 10 scale of all-in. Michigan, 10. Penn State, 10. USC, 10. Oregon, 10. Institutionally, those schools are all-in with doing what it takes to win at the highest level of college football. Washington, I would say, is an 8. And UCLA, as it's currently constructed, is a six, right? And part of that's because it's a basketball school, but it's also partly because of the leadership and the institutional ethos. And so whether it's Chip or his replacement, Deshaun Foster, or Jim Mora, or Rick Neuheisel, or Carl Durrell, I mean, it's the UCLA is part of UCLA's problem. Chip had a had a huge role in the trajectory of the program and the apathetic fan base and empty seats, but it's not all Chip, and it hasn't been all Chip. And unless some of that stuff changes institutionally, I'm not sure Deshaun Foster is going to succeed in the Big Ten. Yeah, no, I I am convinced that they're headed to five wins next season. You know, and that and they they might be happy with that. And UCLA to me is the most interesting realignment case study more interesting than you know the pacific northwest schools in the big 10 or the schools going on the big 12 even more interesting than stanford and cal in the acc which is bananas as we get reminded every week uh the acc and i don't know if you saw the acc announced the the sites for like 10 olympic sports championship conference championships they're all in north carolina uh but to me ucla is fascinating because they are not constructed to succeed in the big 10 of football immediately because their olympic sports are going to face so many challenges and yet are so important to the institution because of their tie to the UC system and to Cal at West. I just think it's it's going to be fascinating to watch how they do in the Big Ten and what the sentiment is among their stakeholders after, say, year three of this experiment. Like, is it working or not? I don't and think it's, it's going to take three years. I, I think it's more like a year and a half, two, two football seasons, whatever it takes. And, and I'm really curious to see the impact on basketball and are you able to still – continue to recruit at a high level if uh, you know you are just a basketball school getting your teeth kicked in in football I mean I I think they're interesting I also am interested to see what Washington does you know given that they have a new head coach and Jed Fish I'm curious can Oregon really play toe-to-toe with Ohio State like you know if Ohio State's making moves like going out and getting Chip Kelly as an offensive coordinator can you compete with that like 
let's see what what happens there and then and then I think uh you know we're be, we'll be all over this too like Oregon State Washington State what the heck happens to them and and where do they go I mean there is a lot there's a bunch of spin-offs here that are I uh I'm I'm not sure which frisbee to watch I'm like watching a bunch of people in a park throw frisbees and I'm going this is going to be really interesting to see what happens with all of these things when they land you know Oregon is uh a trendy pick to win the Big 10 I had picked them to win, and I started talking about it, and then Chip Kelly went to Ohio State, and then I thought, well, maybe I need to see Dylan Gabriel in the spring, and I need to see Dan Lanning win a big game. But that that's not a – I mean, you're not crazy if you think Oregon with the you know a top-five recruiting class and all the resources. I mean, Oregon's all in. Like you talk about – you said 10 for Oregon on a scale of 1 to 10. I'd say they were at 11 because, like, they're just – this is what they want to do. And they have been thinking about it, and this is where they want to be positioned. And um, you know, they're moving in a direction with a lot of uh, alacrity right now. And we'll see what happens with that. Uh, we have, boy, there's other things. We've been going for close to an hour, for, forty-five minutes at least. Plenty of stuff that we didn't even get to. It's just, it's crazy how busy it is, right? And uh by the time we talk next who knows i don't think any coaches are going to move but there could be absolute mayhem uh with the transfer portal with nil it, college sports and especially college football it's like we're watching evolution play out in real time here because by the end of this calendar year the sport might be completely different than it looks right now we're committed to doing an episode a week uh, obviously but um, you know, we may pop in with special episodes. That's why it's important that you subscribe. Make sure you're following us on the uh, social channels. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll be back with another ep- episode next week. Uh, a lot happened in the last week. Uh, can't wait to see what happens in the, in the next five, six days. Thanks very much, everybody.